and the fourth part being the conclusion, uh, which is IS 285-286. So that was the overall <coughs> outline of what we were covering in Al-Baqarah, and our goal is to cover uh, from IS 1 through 39 by the time we get to Ramadan, inshallah, then after that we can decide whatever it is we are going to do from here. Uh, another point, this is a good piece of advice, give it to me. Uh, uh, if you have questions, uh, if it's possible, please save them until the end of, of the class. Because those of you who've been attending the class regularly have seen that I'll, be, I'll speak mid-sentence and then I'll answer a question. I have a screen here that's literally only the, the, the chat box. And, and so if possible, please save your questions uh, 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 until then. Uh, if you type them up and send them, I will try my best to ignore them until we actually get to the, the end of class time to address your questions. You may also find that a lot of your questions will be answered uh, before we, we, we finish, just so we can at least have some, some consistency within my own self um, as, uh, as the class goes on. So having said that, we have gone through the first ayah, Alif Lamin. <clears throat> and we've introduced the, the second ayah. And this subsection, once again, is the people of taqwa. Um, ayahs two through five. That's what we are looking at uh, uh, today. So <clears throat> in terms of the word taqwa itself, Yesterday, when we were finishing off, we talked about the word kitab, and we talked about the evolution of, of, the, of the process of compiling the Qur'an. We went from the Prophet, peace be upon him, to Abu Bakr, to, to Uthman, and then I don't remember if I also touched on uh, Hajjaj bin Yusuf. If you'd like, we could do further uh, evolution of, of the, the, the production of the Qur'an. But uh, the point I wanted us to know is that the, the word kitab at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, would be more accurately, or seems to me more accurately translated as prescription. So today when we think of kitab, we think of book. Think of kitab then, <clears throat> uh, as prescription. And, and to be fair, it includes the word script in it. Kutiba alaykum al-siyam. Kutiba alaykum al Written for you, prescribed for you, is fasting. Or prescribed for you is, is fighting, so forth and so on. So this is the kitab, no doubt, guidance for those who have taqwa, or no doubt in it. Uh, sorry, we had the, the wrong surah up. So let's translate the other big term here, taqwa. Taqwa in common parlance translates as fear of God. If we're being more accurate to its usage in the Quran, as well as its linguistics, taqwa more accurately translates as, as shielding yourself. So, taqwa is to shield yourself with Allah, or to shield yourself from something, like the fire. Ittaqunar. So, shield yourself from the fire. Ittaqullah, shield yourself with Allah. Shield yourself uh, from 
what Allah Ta'ala may respond with in terms of negative things. Okay. So this is the prescription, no doubt, in it, guidance for those who have taqwa. Okay. Now, <clears throat> one of the points we, we introduced uh, as we were finishing class last time was that uh, when you look at fihi in the Arabic text, you see three dots before it, three dots after it. So this, this uh, uh, term in recitation, mu'anaka, the idea here is you stop at one or you stop at the other. So to give you a translation of the two separate sentences we have built into ayah two, one way to read it is this is the book, no doubt in it is guidance for those who have taqwa. This is one way to read it. Another way to read it is this is the book that has no doubt in it. It is guidance for those who have taqwa. So if you look at the two sentences that I posted, this is the book, no doubt. In it is guidance for those who have taqwa. This is the book that has no doubt in it. It is guidance for those who have taqwa. So see how fascinating it is when you shift the in it from the first phrase to the second phrase, or from the second phrase to the first phrase. So notice the difference that's being said. Regarding the first part, this is the book, no doubt, and it has no doubt in it. So there's no doubt about the book, and there's no doubt about the content of the, of the book, speaking about the container and the content. Likewise with the second half, in the contents of the book is guidance for those who have taqwa, and the book itself is guidance for those who have taqwa. And then again, I'm using book for simplicity. We can use prescription or, or kitab. So we're saying the whole package is doubtless, and is guidance and the content of the package is doubtless and contains guidance and it looks like you have all frozen which means that it's probably me who's frozen okay can you hear me now can you hear me okay very good yeah sorry about that so the last thing i was saying is that it's uh, the sentence when we read it both ways are speaking about the guidance uh, or the content as well as the, uh, the, the package itself. Or the package, the full package being the kitab, the book, the prescription, and then the content of the package, which is uh, no doubt and guidance. The book has no doubt and it's guidance. The content is no doubt and guidance. I actually met a person about, about 25 years ago who became Muslim just because of that ayah. Because he's saying in academics, everything is, is relative truth and such. And this was something where it was for him a breath of fresh air as claiming to be an absolute truth. Take that uh, what you will. There's also some subtle points here. Thalika is actually literally on its own. It means that. So this would be that book or that is the book in terms of how we're reading this. And so the way this is commonly understood is is that it's pointing to the book that is in the presence of Allah Ta'ala. So the term here is lawh, mahfuz. So, so this raises the question, where is the actual Qur'an? 
If we said the Quran was not in physical book form at the time of the Prophet, peace be upon him, where is the Quran? So there's a couple of answers given to this question. The actual Quran is in the hearts of the people who have it memorized. But even that is looked at as a copy, as well as a Mus'haf, a physical copy, is looked at as a copy of what Allah Ta'ala possesses with him. Whatever that means in terms of the theological realm. No, mafuz on this guarded tablet. So it could be pointing to that. This gets into some theological things we don't need to really get into uh, right now. Now, a point that the viewer raised yesterday is that if you take Ayah 2, it looks like it's saying it's guidance for those who already have taqwa. What if, <coughs> excuse me, what if I don't have taqwa? Then what good is this going to do me? What we will see as we go through is that there's going to be two levels of guidance. One level will be how to get taqwa. And then another will be guidance for those who have taqwa. Now, I'm not going to be distinguishing between the two as we go through, but I'll draw attention. So, for example, if you look at Ayah 21, um, um, this is only if you have time to, to, to scroll to that page. You know, Ya ayyuhannas u'budu rabbakum. So, oh, 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 humanity, be the abd of your rabb. He created you as he created those before you. And then, la'allakum tattaqoon. Perhaps you may get taqwa, so that you may get taqwa. So we have a number of ayahs in the Quran that speak on how to develop taqwa. Likewise, we speak of the month of Ramadan as the month of fasting, and fasting is looked at as literally walking taqwa. Why? Because there's this conversation we have among the companions. In, in some narrations, Omar is one of the companions. And he is asking, try to explain what is taqwa. What does it mean, this world that, that this word that I am translating as shielding yourself? And the companion says that imagine you have to walk through a forest of thorns, and all you have to protect yourself is a thin shroud, like a thin cloth. So as you're walking, you take the cloth close to yourself so you don't get pricked by the thorns. This act of bringing your cloth, your cloth close to you, your shroud close to you, that is taqwa. And then in a parallel narration with a slightly different answer, imagine you have to walk through this forest of thorns and you're carefully taking each step to make sure you don't get pricked. So those of you who saw the original Raiders of the Lost Ark movie, you know, probably not the best to give a movie example, in the opening scene, Indiana Jones is watching, walking carefully through, through, the, uh, through the cave. Uh, and so that act of being on guard is taqwa. So think about what is fasting. Fasting is being on guard. It is being in the state of self-discipline, of complete on guard, where you're even paying attention to if I'm rinsing my mouth, if I'm brushing my teeth, if I'm doing wudu, whatever the case may be, that I'm not swallowing even a drop of water. That is taqwa. So we're taught taqwa, or fasting, is a pathway to developing taqwa. So again, the point is that there's at the very least two levels of guidance right from the start. Then to make things even more, uh, more interesting, uh, remember when we were in the middle of Al-Fatiha, we spoke about three levels of guidance. Guidance referring to uh, you know, the people of the realm of physics, um, people of Islam, guidance of the people of level of Iman, guidance of the people of level of Ihsan. Three different levels of faith, they will each read all these passages uh, differently. Nevertheless, this is guidance. IS three and four, is giving us six attributes of the people of taqwa. 
And so our goal here is to look at what is common among these three attributes of the people of Tukwa. So first, let me just list them out for you. Belief in the unseen, okay? Iman bil ghayb. Establish salah. Give of what we have bestowed upon them. Believe in the revelation sent to Muhammad, peace be upon him. Belief in the revelation sent to those before him. And certainty in the hereafter. Six attributes of the people of Taqwa. If we look in other surahs of the Quran, we see other attributes. They restrain their anger when they get angry and such. But here we have a set of six attributes. Belief in the unseen, established the law, given what we have bestowed upon them. Belief in the revelation sent to the prophet, peace be upon him. Belief in the revelation sent to those before him. And certainty of the hereafter. So let's take these one by one. Uh, belief in the unseen. Uh, Iman, we've already translated. So Iman, so belief in the unseen equals Iman, correct? Iman bil ghaib. So we translated Iman already. Iman means uh, not just faith, but to have security and to have such a level of security that it radiates out of you. So when you have Iman in something, it means you have this deep level of security in it. If you have Iman in the ghaib, in the unseen, you have this deep level of security of the truth of the unseen. Yeah. What are some things uh, uh, that are in the unseen? Anyone? Either talk or type. What are some things that are in the unseen? Jins, I'm always waiting to see how soon on the list jins come, and it's almost always first. Angels are almost always second. And then, heaven and hell, charity. That's an interesting point. If it's hidden, sure. Past prophets, history is in the unseen, yes. The future is in the unseen, the day of, including the day of judgment. And of course, I'm always checking to see how long it takes before someone mentions Allah Ta'ala, which is almost always at the end. Jinns are almost always the first thing mentioned. Allah is almost always the last thing mentioned. <laughs> So yes, all these things are in the unseen. Well, I shouldn't say things, but all of these are in the unseen. So in the unseen, shaitan is in the unseen. Well, you know, if you ask some Desi parents, they'll tell you, no, shaitan is sitting right in front of me, and he is my child. Anyway, so uh, charity, acknowledging that one's possessions do not belong to them. Sure, absolutely. So most commonly in the unseen, we have Allah, we have other beings, like jinns and angels and whatever else there is in creation. We have history in the unseen. We have the future in, in the unseen. And if you really want to take it further, we can say uh, the contents of other people's hearts is also in the unseen. Like other people's intentions. Like if we're judging someone's intention, we're making a, an assumption about, about the unseen. Too. So, <coughs> At one level, what does this mean? It means that we're taking all these things to be true. Good. And 
what else are we saying here? That these are things that are there that we take as real as things in the seen realm. Okay. And so there was a couple of classes ago, uh, I forgot uh, which of, of the Mirza brothers mentioned it, that this world is corporeal and the next world is spiritual. And I suggested turn it around. The next world is the actual corporeal, real material world. It's just from here, it seems as though the next world is the spiritual world. Okay. This world is a realm of illusion. The next world is the realm of, of absolute clear reality. Okay, so they believe in the unseen. Now here's a question. <clears throat> Think of all the discussions we had yesterday about Alif Lamin. How does that relate to what we just said about belief in the unseen? Froze again. Okay, am I back? Can you hear me? Can you see me? Nod? Yeah. Okay, so at least me coming back is getting faster. Omar is unseen, yeah, mashallah. Okay, so, so the question I was breaking off with was, uh, how does belief in the unseen parallel what we were saying about the disconnected letters, about the huruf al-muqatta'at, like alif lam mim? How does what we say about alif lam mim parallel uh, belief in the unseen? Yes, yes, Dr. Malahat, I have now seen. Any thoughts? So they both require submission, uh, absolutely. Uh, belief in something that is unclear, yeah, I would agree. Okay, only Allah knows the meaning. So think about what we're saying. With alif lamim, belief in the unseen for preparation of the hereafter, accepting that there's something beyond, right there. So alif lamim, by me submitting, by me saying, I don't know what this means, but Allah knows what this means, I'm accepting that there's limits to my knowledge. When I'm believing the unseen, I'm saying there's limits to my perception. With Alif Lamim, I'm saying there's limits to my knowledge that Allah is not limited by. When I'm saying belief in the unseen, I'm saying there's, there's a world that is beyond my perception that Allah is not limited by. Good. That is the parallel we're going to see with all six of these attributes. Good. They all parallel this notion of there's the world that I am in and I can perceive and I can interact with, and then there's the larger world. That's a common element of all of these. So let's get to the, the second attribute, establishing salah. First and foremost, what does it mean to establish salah? Anyone? Here we're using the word salah. We're actually talking about the canonical five daily prayers. What does it mean to establish it? Feel free to type or speak on your microphone, whatever is easier. So um, regular pray is part of your routine. Yeah, making it regular would be the same thing. Uh, so, so making it upright, performing it. <clears throat> Even better is, is, especially if you're male, performing it in the masjid, not during the quarantine. Otherwise, if you're in India, those Indian cops with their sticks are gonna come after you. Okay, you know, foundational pillar uh, discipline. Okay. Okay. So, <clears throat> so think of the idea of establish, establishing, establishing salah 
having different levels depending upon your own level of faith. So for example, <clears throat> for one person, it means you're making your daily prayers as part of your routine. For a person higher than that, they are organizing their day around their daily prayers. So for example, so what is the point that I'm making? For one person, establishment of Salah as an ongoing process means they're making all their daily prayers and they're fitting it into their day. But a person at a higher level is fitting their day into their Salah or around their Salah. So this is the fascinating thing um, about you know, how a lot of these narrations work. So, okay, so this is Omar al-Khadr, so to, uh, 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 to discuss your question. So we have a narration that if you pray two of nafal prayer, purely voluntary, supererogatory prayer, we're taught that the value of it is greater than the universe and all that it contains. And then imagine Fard is even higher than this. Now, one way to understand that for the person at the common level of faith is if I do turaka of nuffle prayer, two units of nuffle prayer, the reward is gigantic. It's equal to the whole universe. Okay. And then along comes Rumi, and then he says, okay, the approach you're supposed to take with that is you look at turaka of nuffle prayer as more valuable than the whole universe, meaning you would rather give up the whole universe than miss Turaka of Nuffal prayer. Same narration, two very, very different meanings. One is evaluating it according to the reward. Another one is evaluating everything in relationship to the prayer. Okay. <clears throat> uh, feel free to type your question, but I'll probably, uh, I won't get into it until, until uh, the end of class, inshallah. Okay, so, uh, so Mahan, as a, Dr. Mahan, as an institution society, absolutely. Like the point that I've been repeating over and over again, relate to the idea of connection, building from connection, the idea of relationships, and from there building to the idea of we as an ummah, and then part of the process of establishing salah is to make it an institution in society. So if you think about institutions in our normal day, uh, for example, uh, at the beginning you have breakfast, you have rush hour, you have the work day, you have lunch hour, you have the latter part of the work day, you have rush hour again. People go home, you have dinner, and then you have prime time, and everyone watches Tiger King, and then everyone goes to sleep, right? So, so that's been, that's sort of the, 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 the common routine. When you make it an institution of society, now you're making it at the collective level. Yeah, that would also be, at a collective level, the process of establishing Salah. So, now, back to our original question. How does establishment of Salah parallel what we said about Alif Lam Mim. How does he answer that question? And I'll take my drink of water, which requires you to speed. Any ideas? How does establishment of Salah? Uh, so also submission, yes. Uh, also connection, passed down, submission, submission. So one theme is submission. So let me ask this question. Uh, think of all the steps uh, of, that are part of Salah. Okay. Now, suppose I did all of those steps, but in reverse order. What do you think? So instead of beginning with intention and Allahu Akbar, or beginning with wudu, intention, Allahu Akbar, 
and then ending with Taslim, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Suppose we did it in reverse order. We started with Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and then Rabbana Atsalam before that, Durud, before that, uh, Tashahud, and we did everything in reverse order. Is it valid? What do you think? So directionality is part of it, meaning order, the order, it, we consider it to be part of it. Good. Because we know that it was not performed that way. So, so what is the point here that we're making? That we're believing that if you do these steps in this particular order, there's an effect beyond what we can see immediately. That if I do all of these steps that we call Fajr prayer, with the prerequisite tahara, wudu, tayyabam, etc., and I do all the steps in this particular order at this time, facing this particular direction, there's an impact there, there's an effect there that I may not be able to see. And so thus, it's connecting to the same idea we have in Alif Lam Mim, as well as in Belief in the Unseen, that there is an effect to my actions that is at the very least in the realm of the unseen. And inshallah, it'll become seen on the other side. It may even become seen on this side. Because if I do 100% of the same steps, but in a completely different order, then that effect is gone. And so thus it, it, uh, it connects to, to uh, all of that. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, uh, well, those questions I may get to later on. Okay, so that is establishing Salah. Third, uh, as, uh, third um, attribute of the people of Taqwa. Uh, they do infaq. of what we have bestowed upon them. So infaq means to give to the point of exhaustion. So this is not the same as zakat. This is not the same as sadaqah. So zakat being the official act of worship in the form of charity that we do once a year. Everybody usually does it in Ramadan. This is not the same as sadaqah, the ongoing charity. This is sadaqah to the point of exhaustion. That's the attribute of the people of taqwa. They're giving and giving and giving and giving. And they give of what we have bestowed upon them. Easy question, who is we here? Easy question. We is Allah, we call this the royal we, right? This is a, this is a technique we have in Urdu, or we might use it in European languages in, in the opposite direction. So for example, if we're speaking in French and I'm speaking to you informally, I'll say tu. If I'm speaking to you formally, I'll say vous. If I'm speaking to you in Spanish, informally, I'll say tu. If I'm speaking to you formally, I'll say usted. Now, so funny, funny event from when I was a kid. I called up uh, my friend Harun to play with him. And so his mom asked, and you know, I'm asking her, you know, Harun hey? You know, is Harun there? And, and she's like, yeah. You know, who's calling? And I said, Hamaranam Omarhe. Right? And then people around me all started laughing because I didn't say my name is Omar. I said, Our name is Omar. 
All right, because I didn't know there was a difference back when I was a kid. Okay. So the point is, we also have this in in Urdu, hum versus me, hum as we, me versus uh, as I, and this is often how kings speak of themselves. And so when we have Allah Taala using royal we, the royal we in the Quran, it almost always seems to be the case that he's speaking like a king, one who is bestowing. As is the case in this ayah, we also have the case, for example, if you, you can look at this uh, on your own, when the when Prophet Musa, peace be upon him, is with Khidr in Surat Al uh, Al Kahf, uh, Khidr, when he's explaining what he did toward the end of the story, he is saying, "We had decided such and such and such and such." It's around around ayah 80, 81, around there. So this is more of a technique of of rhetoric that Allah Taala, when he's speaking as a king, he is often using we. When he's speaking as an intimate. He's speaking uh, uh, as, an, as an I. So there's another point from here. <clears throat> when we say they do infaq with what we have bestowed upon them, the people of Taqwa also see their wealth, their possessions, as being given to them from Allah. Yeah, I'm the one who gets up in the morning. I'm the one who goes to work. I'm the one who, who tires through the day. But Allah is the one who gave me the air to breathe. Allah is the one who gave me the opportunity with the job. Allah is the one that is making the system work so that I can get paid. And so everything I am doing gets traced back to Allah. So part of the idea of the people of taqwa is that they're giving to the point of exhaustion, but they're also looking at the wealth that they're giving as coming from Allah. We always teach this, right? Uh, uh, our whole lives, that your wealth is coming from Allah. These are people that have actually internalized it. Okay. Now, how does this relate to uh, parallel Alif Lam Mim? How does it parallel what we said about belief in the unseen? How does it parallel establishing Salah? Think about what makes it hard for me to give. One might be that I worked so hard for this, so I'm tired, I'm, I'm hesitant to give it away. More commonly, what is the issue? I have this money saved up, this wealth, I haven't needed, but something might come up tomorrow. That's often what makes it hard to give. But I am trusting that the one who gave me the wealth is also the one who has given me struggle. And so I have trust in what Allah has written for me in terms of my future. Nevertheless, keep in mind what we're covering. These are not commands. Okay. Uh, we are not being commanded right now to believe in the unseen. We are not being commanded to establish prayer, and we're definitely not being commanded to give away all your wealth. We're saying here at the beginning, this is what you see of the people of Taqwa. Because later, far later in the surah, the question is raised, okay, what should people give? And we're taught to give of your surplus. Because if I just go and give all my wealth now, that could be delusion. I wind up with no, with food, with no food, and I die. That's not what we're talking about here. But the people of Taqwa, what is the essence of all six of these attributes? The essence of all six of these attributes is that the people of Taqwa have thorough trust in Allah. Whereas what we'll see of the people of Nifaq, the, hypocr the hypocrites, is they have distrust in Allah. So uh, we have just a couple of minutes left. Looking at the last three attributes, they believe in the revelation sent down to you, Muhammad, peace be upon him, which is two things. It's the Quran and, and, and the Sunnah, which is compiled in the Hadith. So when we speak of the revelation that the Prophet received, peace be upon him, 
to Muhammad, peace be upon him. They're actually, we categorize it two way. Wahi Matlu and Wahi Wahi Ghair Matlu. Number one is recited revelation, which is the Quran. Number two is non-recited revelation, which is the Sunnah. Now, what is the relationship of, of Sunnah versus Hadith? These are not the same thing. The Hadith is a compilation of everything that the Prophet is reported to have said, has done, or has witnessed seeming to give approval. Yeah. So hadith equals anything the prophet whoops anything the prophet did or said or witnessed seeming to give approval. The first two are easy to understand. The third one is basically the prophet is in the presence of something and he didn't say that there was anything wrong. If there was something wrong, then he would have said it. That's the hadith. What is the sunnah? The sunnah would be those regular practices that he did repeatedly. At one level of sunnah, it's anything the prophet did or said. And more commonly in terms of what we focus on in practicing would be those things that he did regularly. And of those things he did regularly, one group are the things that he also told us to do. And then another group would be the things that he's doing regularly, but he may not have told us to do. So what is the most important out of those things? Those things that the prophet did regularly, peace be upon him, and he also told us to do them. Okay, so that's sunnah versus hadith. And so the prophet, peace be upon him, he received both of those as, as revelation. And then how many, uh, and finishing off, we're going to do uh, item six tomorrow, inshallah, but uh, number five, they believe in the revelation to send to those before him. Uh, according to our beliefs, how many prophets have there been in, in the history of the world? Someone put a, uh, type in a number. So just a little bit more than that, 124,000. So the prophet, peace be upon him, is on the night journey. And when he comes back, he says, you know, he prayed, leading all the prophets. And he said there was 124,000 prophets there. Now, here's the question that we don't discuss as much. How many uh, revelations, how many scriptures, how many books have there been? That's in the Quran, five or six. Uh, Way, way higher. Those of you from Detroit. Okay, 313. So uh, um, about 313 scriptures in history, all with the same core message. All the prophets have had the same message, and all of the, uh, the texts uh, 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 have the same core message. And the easy way to remember this is, coincidence or not, that's also the number of Muslims that were at Badr, 313. Okay, does that mean coincidence mean anything beyond that? No, let us pass. Okay, uh, where do we get this number from? Uh, this uh, uh, I actually got from my own teachers themselves, multiple teachers. I can ask them where they got it from. Yeah, inshallah. Um, and uh, there's much more. There aren't 300 prophets in, in the Bible itself. Um, 
Okay, so we will do uh, item number six um, tomorrow, inshallah. But uh, uh, if you have any questions now, uh, feel free to raise them. So why are only Abrahamic prophets mentioned in the Quran when are prophets of the ancient lands of China? So most of the prophets in the Quran are also in the Bible. And one of the arguments that's given is that in terms of the da'wah that the prophet is doing through the Quran, he's speaking in those passages to the people of Medina you know, who are largely Jews. And so speaking to them that language. But there's still some questions about a few other prophets um, that are hard to give a, parallel, a biblical parallel to. Um, other questions, someone turned on, it sounded like you turned on your microphone. Does infaq apply only to financial wealth? So in terms of giving, there's two things that the Quran mentions over and over again, your wealth and your soul. So your wealth could be your financial wealth, your soul would be your time or your skills and such. Uh, could the Freudian notion of unconscious be considered to be unseen? What could uh, could what we do unconsciously be the unseen consequence of our acts or worship or thereof? That question is way beyond what I'm capable of answering. We'll have to have that. Uh, uh, Rami will have to have the discussion a little bit further. Um, but I'm suspecting um, Freud, Freud's structure parallels a little bit of our structure somewhat, but I'm, I'm skeptical that his notion of unconscious relates to our unseen. So I'll, I'll need you to teach me more about his, uh, it's been literally like 15, 20 years since I've studied Freud. Uh, Laiba says, I've heard about the superiority of making your daily tasks fit around the Salah before as well, but practically speaking, it always seems like I'm trying to fit Salah in gaps in my commitments. Part of it is due to having a schedule that is more or less beyond my control and having daily prayers that have shifting times throughout the calendar. So how do we reconcile this? Well, in your case, Laiba, you're still a student. And so you're definitely uh, at the mercy of, of your schedule. Now, this would be something to see if you can change uh, um, as you become a, you know, a full thorough uh, a physician, inshallah. Uh, but I mean, I'll give you the example of, of my own father, uh, who is a professional engineer, and then one day he decided he wanted to go to all, to, you've heard this from me, wanted to go to the masjid for all five prayers, and literally he, he organizes everything around that. All the people in Orland Park know him. Um, I don't see it changing anytime soon. Uh, make the intention, inshallah you can, but inshallah you at least get rewarded for the desire to have done that. In our discussion on establishing salah, please correct me if I'm wrong, you mentioned if you are male, even better in the masjid. How is it different for men and women? The, the common understanding uh, in a Muslim-majority society or a Muslim polity is men are actually required to go to the masjid for all five prayers. That's the common reading. That's why I said, especially for men. That's different than saying who's allowed to go to the masjid. So, for example, in our society in America, where, where, where gender roles are almost interchangeable, I mean, that, uh, I think it's kind of, uh, ridiculous how hard it is for, for women to have spaces in the masjid. Uh, uh, Mucky has her old website, Side Entrance, which captures the photos of, of uh, women's prayer spaces, and I think men should look at them to see it, uh, that how absurd they are. Um, so, uh, so the point is, uh, uh, I don't know if you're seeing that as two different points. One is what's mandatory in a Muslim polity versus uh, you know, Islam in our society. Isn't that the minority position that is far for men, uh, Abdullah Ansari? It's the majority opinion that is far for men uh, in a Muslim polity, in contrast to you living in a non-Muslim society like America. Uh, uh, one of my friends who, who uh, uh, his teacher, I've told some of you this story, his teacher came from, uh, from uh, what's the madrasa in Karachi, Benoria, um, came from there and was traveling around with, with this friend of mine. 
And, and this teacher said, if you have Muslims who are praying five, uh, all their five prayers in America, considering how, how hardcore life's, our lifestyles are here with work and everything, you should consider them to be walis of Allah. You should consider them to be saints if they're making their five daily prayers. Yeah. Uh, this teacher was astonished by how hard it is over here. Doesn't the recommendation normalize the men in the masjid, women uh, mostly praying at home? Uh, I would say it does do that absolutely, right? Uh, but I'm cautious about looking at that, uh, that language as normalizing. That is the community-wide thing, right? In the sense that uh, uh, we can just as easily normalize women's authority in the community um, and distinguish that from prayer in the masjid. Uh, like for example, uh, you know, there's uh, people kind of, kind of misquote this hadith that you know, if you have a woman in charge, then you know, that community is, kind of, is doomed. Uh, uh, but we also have a history of, of many women who are in leadership positions, which is higher than the position of the imam, right? Um, but uh, uh, Mitra, think about it some more, um, and we can discuss it uh, further. Um, does history being part of the unseen only relate to uh, being uh, there physically? Uh, essentially, uh, so in the story, at the end of Surah 12, it's the story of Yusuf salam. Allah Ta'ala is telling the Prophet, peace be upon him, you weren't there when these things happened. This is in history, this is in the ghayb. And another way to think about it is when we're saying these things are in the unseen, we're trusting that they are true. So think of the most hot button issues when we get into history. Like think of like the history of the Middle East, the history of Jerusalem. One of your first questions is gonna be, okay, whose sources am I gonna trust? Yeah. And so, so history includes the trust of what did or, or didn't happen. Uh, let's see, what other questions? Uh, can we get access to the last few sessions, perhaps Google Drive them? Uh, let me post for you really quickly, inshallah, uh, the recordings we have thus far while other people are raising any other questions. And if I missed your question above, um, please let me know. And so, so these should be the last uh, seven classes, inshallah. Again, they work for some people, they don't work for some people. Any other questions? Uh, if not, we will continue tomorrow. And the, oh, two things. So number one, we'll continue tomorrow with attribute, attribute number six of the people of Taqwa. And we're talking about certainty. So I'd like you to think about things that you are absolutely unquestionably certain about. Okay. Whatever it is, come with those answers for tomorrow. Second thing, next homework assignment. So homework assignment number one is, is to be doing the gratitude exercise. And if someone can repost it for, for everyone else, uh, that you should still be doing every single day. Uh, exercise homework assignment number two. Uh, find a translation that you are willing to write in. If you understand Arabic, that's actually easier for you. Uh, find, but if not, then find a translation that you're willing to write in. And many of you know this homework assignment from me. The mandatory part, okay, there's the homework. There's homework number one. The mandatory part of the assignment is starting from page one, starting from Al-Fatiha. Okay. Anytime there is a mention of Allah, underline it. Okay. 
So, for example, praise be in the name of God, underline. Lord of mercy, underline. Giver of mercy, underline. Keep going. If there's not a mention of Allah, you do not underline it. Okay? And try to do a minimum of 20 ayahs a day. Again, if you do that, it'll take you, give or take, about 60 seconds. Minimum 20 ayahs a day. And then that's the mandatory homework. The optional homework is at the same time, start from the back of the Quran from Surah 114 and read it and reflect upon it. And just note down any thoughts, reflections, questions for yourself and try to do one Surah per day. Okay. That's the optional homework. Uh, 20 ayahs, not 20 mentions, 20 ayahs. 20 ayahs might have five mentions of Allah. 20 ayahs may have 50 mentions of Allah. If you do not have a translation that you can write in uh, and you're somewhere in America, I'm happy to mail you one, uh, but you'll have to send me your, your info. Send it to my, uh, or actually you, you see the spelling of my name there. So uh, omarmuzaffar at gmail.com. Give me your name and, and address and I'll order one for you. Um, if you do not have one, I mean, get one if you're actually going to use it. If you're not going to use it, then then, then don't ask for one. But um, uh, so that is the assignment. Okay, so so Basir, to repeat, uh, um, in a translation, if you do not already understand the Arabic, starting from Al-Fatiha and working your way through, go through 20 eyes a day minimum and underline every time there's a reference to Allah. What is the function of this assignment? If you do this on a regular basis, it's going to shift your focus in the Quran from other things towards God. A lot of times when we're reading the Quran, especially in translation, especially the first time or a few times, we're looking for anything that we might find scary or things I don't want to accept, or we're looking for what is it telling me to do. It's shifting away from all of that into the Quran. And if you keep doing it, then you will start seeing a taste of this outside of reading the Quran, where you're looking for, for Allah in your day-to-day -day experience. Can I repeat the optional assignment? The optional assignment is you start from Surah 114, and you read and you reflect on one Surah per day. So you start with Surah 114, Surah the Nas, reflect on it, take notes, raise questions. 113 the next day, take notes, raise questions, so forth and so on. Okay. If you can do these assignments consistently, then by the time we get to the beginning of Ramadan or the end of April, then increase it from 20 to 30 ayahs per day. Okay. And then the next month, it's easy for me to keep with the Gregorian calendar. So by the time we end April, and then by the time you end May, increase it to 40, then to 50, then to 60. You'll finish the entire translation again in six to nine months, inshallah. Okay. All righty. <clears throat> we will stop right here. Uh, once again, if you want me to, um, if you want me to send you a translation, Omar Muzaffar, no spaces at gmail.com. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka najubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma wa bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka najubi ilayk. Subhanakallahumma, glory to you, O Allah, wa bihamdika, praise and gratitude to you. Nashadu illa ilaha illa anta, we bear witness there is no God but you. Nastaghfiruka, we seek your forgiveness. Wa natubi ilayk, and we turn to you. Wa akhir da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. May Allah Ta'ala reward you all and keep you all safe. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah, and I will see you tomorrow.